the upcoming generation gets a bad rap, but they're actually so smart, like smarter than we were mm -hmm. when we were coming up. What is lacking right now is they are so ingrained in technology that they don't have the basic communication skills. So mm -hmm. I think it's incumbent upon us as we start with CIs, like really teaching them like how to have conversations, how to make eye contact, how to be confident and courageous with your ideas. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees. I'm also the CEO of Student Housing Insight. If this is your first time listening to the podcast and you want to find out more information about SHI because we are not just a podcast, but we're rather a platform for industry professionals to learn and be informed and network so we can all make student housing better. You can go to studenthousinginsight.com to get more information. Well, I've got a very special co-host today. Mary Allen, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, we met last week at Interface. By the time this comes out, it'll probably be two weeks after Interface. But you had a very special way of going to interface, I guess is the best way <laughs> of describing it. You were the the recipient of the W Collective's tuition scholarship, whatever they're calling it. I think it's scholarship for someone to actually attend interface. And we got to meet shortly after the panel that you were on. And I said, hey, we, we got to get on the podcast together. I want your perspective of how the conference went. And of course, we also did a recording there that we're going to play here shortly for everybody. But I wanted to get that to you in advance and kind of get your perspective on it and things that kind of your takeaways, I guess, of how that conversation went. So really quick, introduce yourself to the audience. Okay. Hi, guys. Well, my name is Mary Allen, and I am currently managing the Lorenzo in Los Angeles, California. It's the largest community in the nation with over- She loves to say that, by the way. <laughs> I do. I do. Because I, I think it's incredible. I've never even knew that there was a property this big. Um, 3,600 beds. That's, yes. that's a lot. <laughs> it, it is. It's even crazier what it takes to manage it. So we have over 50 employees, and then we have a corporate support team based here in California who support us all the time. So it's insane. <laughs> now you were not a West Coast girl. You grew up on the East Coast, right? Yep. I'm a Georgia peach. <laughs> <laughs> so how is life in Los Angeles? Has it been a big adjustment? I will say I lived in suburbia for a really long time. Yeah. I was in the Kennesaw market and I think I was really used to that. So living in the downtown area with no drive-throughs, no places to park, that's yeah. the biggest adjustment, but I love the city. The students are great. I'm looking forward to doing the SoCal Challenge. Have you ever heard of that? I don't think I have. Okay. So you go to the beach, the desert, and the mountains to ski okay. in one day. Okay. Yeah. So you're that's... supposed to surf, ski, and then like, I don't know what you do in the sand on the desert, but some kind of sand surfing. Okay. No, that, yeah, that is one great thing about California is being able to do that. I love not necessarily Los Angeles, but everything south of Los Angeles, <laughs> all the way down to San Diego. Los Angeles gives me a headache, but everything south of it is just fantastic. I understand the draw and why people are willing to deal with the hot taxes and everything else <laughs> when you get there. So, well, that's fantastic. Well, hey, 
tell us a little bit about this process with, because I know you had to submit a, what's the word I'm thinking? I'm not thinking right. An application. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I had to submit my resume and then I had to answer a few questions about... Um, it's like an essay, right? Yeah, kind of like essay points. Okay. I, I just talked a little bit about my experience, where I want to go in my career and what I've had to overcome as a woman in leadership and in gotcha. student housing property management. So it was a really great time to reflect and they did like a blind selection. So they removed any names, companies, oh, anything oh. that would tell them who someone is and they did a blind selection and I was picked. So I feel delighted that I had the opportunity to attend the conference. That is awesome. And congratulations for that. I want to talk a little bit about the panel that you guys were on and just kind of what was your biggest takeaway from being on that panel and speaking with all the other women that are involved with the W Collective and what was kind of your takeaway from just that part of the conference? Yeah, just speaking on stage, they were fearless. They did incredible. I was like so scared. My heart was pounding out of my chest. (laughs) (laughs) So they really supported me and encouraged me and told me I could do it. So I appreciated that a ton. But the content of what they delivered, I think, was really powerful. And the changes that they've already made in the industry, like what they were able to accomplish in the previous year and then what is on the horizon. I feel like one of the saddest things is like the lack of diversity that we had on the stage and everyone's aware of it, but people aren't, they're not taking that step yet. So we want to pull more diversity onto Mm -hmm. the stage. We want more women of color and we want not even just women, but people of color to be in leadership positions. So I think that's something that we would really like to work towards in the industry. Mm -hmm. So that was something that really stuck out to me, but just the tangible things that they have accomplished and are working towards fertility treatment for families trying to grow their families is the next big thing that they're really pushing this year to have companies invest. So expensive. So expensive. It is. And they said that, you know, most families have to go through up to five rounds of treatment, which could cost up to $150,000. Can you imagine being in that position where you want to grow your family and it's either, do you have the money or do you not? Yeah. And it's impacting so many people. You know, I don't know if it's the kind of food we eat these days or what, but it was very, very rare. I remember, well, and of course it was just because of the science, but anybody that was having to go through that and decide if they were going to adopt or whatever, it seemed very rare. Maybe people just weren't talking about it. I don't know. But especially here over, call it the past five, six, seven years, I feel like everybody has had to kind of go through the, we, I, myself and my wife did, now we've got four kids, so there was absolutely no issue <laughs> but to get to that first. I'm probably telling too much for the podcast, but there was a while where we were like, okay, something's not working here. But I remember going through that at that point in time, and my oldest is 17, and you know, I was thinking, what if we have to go through this process? Fortunately, we didn't. But yeah, that's a scary thing. And just looking at the cost, it's almost like if you know that that's got to come out of your pocket, it's not happening. Yeah, it can seem impossible. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the conference to get your perspectives as an attendee, especially as a site manager coming to it, because I'm covering all the conferences. But I get asked all the time from not just folks that are on the site side or corporate side or the supply side, you know, from a vendor or something like that. They're always asking me, which conferences should I go to? 
And when it comes to interface, it's one of those conferences that I tell everybody, you've got to go at least once. If this is a career that you're wanting to, you know, maybe you've been on site for four or five years and you're kind of thinking, okay, well, what's next? That conference, and even though it's not cheap, is kind of really the best way to open your eyes to the bigger world of student housing and understand what's happening from the finance side and the brokerage side and the development side and see it all kind of come together and really what was all behind that property that you're working at, the things that had to happen years in advance (laughs) before that property was even delivered. It's a great way of doing that. So from that standpoint, I always tell, you know, a site manager, like, look, if this is an industry you want to stay in and you want to grow in, figure out how to go to it at least once. It is not something you need to go to every year. It is something that once I think you're probably beyond the site level, it's probably something you want to go to every couple of years for sure, depending on what your position is. Obviously, if you're in any kind of business development role, be it for a management company, be it for a developer or from a supplier standpoint, this is the one that you've got to be at every year because everybody's there. And so from that standpoint, I mean, this is probably my eighth or ninth, I guess. I've kind of <laughs> forgot about what it was like that first time I went. And so just want to kind of get your feedback as to what were your takeaways? Honestly, they did such an incredible job on putting this conference together. When I arrived to pick up my name tag, they knew me by name before I even said it. Yeah. They're like, oh, Mary, here's your name tag. And I was like, what? I'm like a nobody at this conference. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, everybody got an email beforehand saying, hey, this is our scholarship winner. Make sure <laughs> that, that didn't happen. But we, we did. Everybody did get if they were tuned into LinkedIn, they certainly saw the announcement. Yeah, but that was just, it was a very warm welcome right out of the gate. But the conference was really nice. I think that people were so quick to take me under their wing. Jessica Love in particular, she showed me around and took me places like after hours, after the conference, she was taking me to cocktail parties and introducing (laughs) me to every single person we passed along the way. And she was just such a joy. And I think she's going to be my new mentor, which I'm really excited about. So it was a great opportunity to network. That was my favorite part of the conference. The sessions were so interesting. So for being someone on the site level, you think you understand the site better than your ownership. Yeah. You know that point of view. It's kind of like, I don't think he could handle helping this <laughs> resident with this resident <laughs> issue. <laughs> we'll probably be the first person to tell you, or she may be the first person to tell you that I don't really want to handle that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and that's okay. That's okay. But I think we forget that there's a whole other side of the industry that they handle, like the development, the marketing analysis. They're figuring out how to incorporate AI into our business. You know, they're doing all of these incredible things. And they're really smart because I didn't know what a BIP was (laughs) 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 or a basis point. So I found that it was really cool to see what it's like to think like an owner. And it did encourage me to want to educate myself further um, so that I can continue to grow in my career. So I want to understand what does this mean? How does this impact like when you're buying a property? What are all these things that are so important? How do my actions as someone on the site level impact that? And how can I be a part of improving? So yeah, very interesting. You brought up a couple of things there that that did kind of take me back to the first time I went. And 
this is how old I am, Mary. So this year was the 15th interface conference that happened. There was before that, there was the NMHC student housing conference, which still happens today. I think we're up to 19th or 20th. I went to that very first conference. That was the very first conference in student housing on the face of the globe, other than on-campus housing. And it was so funny. I remember going to that. It was in D.C. And at that time, there were like four or five of us, kind of national players or whatever. And I was with a very small merchant development company. And we literally kind of sat down at... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, in these conference rooms and started talking about, well, what do you do for a turn? Or, I'm not telling you what I do for turn because that's <laughs> proprietary. <laughs> we were so like, we were so hungry for information, but at the same time, we didn't want to share anything because we felt like we had, you know, like the patent on student housing or something. So it's so neat now seeing with interface specifically everybody's open to helping you understand something that maybe you've yet to figure out so that is something that i really like about it well any other fun stories from the conference my second favorite part was just meeting the women on the w collective erica and whitney were like my go-to people throughout the conference and beforehand and they were so supportive and i've actually been wanting to meet erica for years and years (laughs) she was someone i followed on linkedin and i like followed her religiously and i like stalked her profile a million times (laughs) so meeting her in person and like seeing her out on display like doing her thing to be around her is really incredible. So I really enjoyed getting to be in her space and get to know her and see how she has risen to where she is in her career. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So I followed her her entire career because (laughs) when I was a regional manager, she was a CA on one of my properties in Greenville. East Carolina. (laughs) So I have, uh, yeah, ask her who taught her, you know, about a cap rate and (laughs) and how much a pizza actually costs to the property. And um, she'll tell you that that I taught her that. (laughs) That is so funny. I love that. So uh, as I mentioned, we did a recording of a live podcast on Monday of the event. And I guess this is my fifth year of doing it. I guess five out of six because we didn't do it in 2020, but I always really enjoy these. And the past couple of years, we've just done it with CEOs and we've called it from the top and they've been great, but I really wanted to do something to get back to talking about operations and some of the folks that are in those SVP roles and chief operating officer roles, they're my age or younger and it's very likely they'll be in this industry for, you know, another 10 years and and potentially owning their own businesses within student housing, be it a management company or something on the supply side or whatever. I know for myself, this is my career, right? And so there are things that I go to bed at night thinking <laughs> about how is this going to impact the industry? And I really just wanted to kind of, because we don't really talk about those things until it ends up being an article in Student Housing Business Magazine or something. And I really wanted to get those folks in front of the microphone and before the conference really amped up and just say, okay, what are you guys thinking about this? And I think it went really well, but you got a chance to listen to it in advance. What are some of the takeaways as a 
site manager and where you're at in your career? What were some of the takeaways? Yeah. So I found it really interesting. Like we talked about earlier, thinking like an owner, I think that's something that I've really enjoyed about the Interface Conference and even this interview, understanding what are the things that they're looking at, like market trends, forecasting for what's to come in the future, how that's going to impact the student housing world, how companies are going to be implementing AI into their everyday operations. And then as an emerging leader (laughs) in the industry, I really enjoyed learning about about what they look for when they're building their team, what yeah. kind of traits they're looking for in a person. Myself, I personally am constantly reflecting on how I completed a task, how I did giving instructions, how I managed my team, how I did something. And I'm always thinking of what I can do to be better the next day. So I think it's really cool to hear from some of the executives in the space, what they look for. And I think it's really neat to figure out how you can kind of work closer to achieving those things. Yeah. So many of these folks on the, let's call it a panel, I guess, I've kind of grown up with, I guess is the best way of describing it within the industry. You know, I've known Jen Cassidy for quite a while, and this was actually the first time Dan and I have actually worked on stuff together. We've been part of transactions before and kind of other than, you know, being on emails and things like that, that's kind of been the extent of it, but it was great to yeah, really just sit down and kind of think of what they were thinking. And yeah, the whole part about what does that team look like around you in the future? I hope everybody will really kind of turn it up and listen to that part because that question was really for this audience because I know most of our audience are site managers and leasing managers and they're trying to think about that next step for them. So with that being said, let's go ahead and cut over to the interview. This is what does the future hold for student housing operations featuring, well, it's featuring like five different people. I'll let them introduce themselves. <laughs> well, guys, welcome to Interface. Thanks for joining. I guess this is now the the fifth Student Housing Insight podcast on location at Interface. And we've had a lot of fun with this in the past. I'm looking for, I think this is the biggest group of podcast guests I've had at one time. So this ought to be pretty fun. Hopefully we've got all the uh, technical stuff worked out. So um, once we start getting beyond four microphones, sometimes it causes a few problems. But I want you guys to go around and introduce yourself. But the one thing I want to make sure our audience is aware of and the reason I chose you guys and gals to be here with us today is I really wanted to talk with the operations folks about, you know, what's keeping you guys up at night, not necessarily what's happening the next day, the next quarter, but really all of you guys are still young enough in your career that it's very feasible for all of you guys to be here in 10 years, either with your same company, running your own company within this industry. And so there's a lot of changes I see coming over the next five to 10 years and really just kind of want to understand what you guys are thinking about as it relates to the industry and how things may change. So with that being said, Dan, we'll start with you if you'll introduce yourself. Dan Chopi, I'm the COO of Campus Life and Style. Been in the business 25 years this year. Jessica Dellis, Vice President of Operations with Yugo. We have globally 40,000 beds. In the U.S., we have 20,000. And I've been doing this for over 20 years, so I can't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. Brian Schellengaski. I serve as one of the managing directors of Ops for Graystar. 
we have about 85,000 beds uh, under management, and I've been in the industry for about 20 years, both on campus and off. Aaron Bailey, I'm the Vice President of Student Housing for the Dinnerstein Companies, and I've been in the industry for, this will be 15 years for me. Jen Cassidy, Senior Vice President of Operations for Cardinal Group Companies. I oversee our student portfolio, which is roughly 85,000 beds, and I think like everyone else, I've been doing this for a little over 20 years. I wanted to start today is talking about our customers, both the residents and the universities, because quite honestly, if it's without them, there is no student housing industry. So I really felt like it was appropriate to start there for sure. And they've got some pretty big challenges ahead of them, especially on the university side of things that are facing them over the next few years. For one, we've talked about population decline with Gen Z and some of the future generations and how that's going to end up playing into enrollment. You've also got a perceived value of higher education that is starting to diminish. I was looking at the news this morning on the flight in, and it was just happened to be a survey that just came out in the past week. Uh, 54% of college students don't see the value in it at all. And so a lot of them are turning towards trades, which I think's important, but you know, how is that going to play with enrollment? And then, of course, the job market post-COVID. A lot of folks that are graduating high school are able to go into a job for the first time making a decent amount of money that it's worth them probably putting off school for a little bit. So, obviously, you guys have been tracking pre-leasing and across all of our Tier 1 markets, everything has been going fantastic, but not necessarily on our tier three schools, our community colleges, a lot of tier two schools as well. And how that ends up playing out over the next few years, we'll see. But I think we're at a time where we've had, I believe the stat was about seven and a half percent decrease since, certainly since 2019. And I think we've had closer to four and a half percent since 2017. So take out the pandemic, we've still gone down quite a bit. So I, I just want to put that out there to you guys. With the declining enrollment, do you think that's going to impact student housing market over the next 10 years, and how so? Well, first of all, I think it's an interesting question, and I think, like, I don't know how everybody else here feels, but as operators, we don't get asked these types of questions all the time. We're asked more about, like, how we operate in the day-to-day. So appreciated the question and also the insights you shared with us and some of the articles that you looked at. I think it's similar to a lot of things in that it's not a one-size-fits-all impact, but I think some interesting things have happened in the last few years. If you look at Knoxville, for example, which is a headline market that's doing very well, do I think kids start going back to UT Martin at the rate they were before? No. But if you look at some campuses that have benefited from that type of growth and enrollment growth, the infrastructure at some point doesn't support it. So if you look at Baylor right now, they're declining their freshman class simply because they can't continue to accept with the growth rates they've had for the last three years. So I think some of it may be temporary and we may see some of the tier one institutions have to start pulling back and we may see that help the tier two markets. I think some of it is permanent. What I found interesting in some of what you shared is just thinking about just community colleges and being able to staff them, right? Like it's more compelling to go work as a nurse practitioner than it is to teach and you can make more money and those trades are being valued higher than they were before. And I do think that there are going to be 
impacts, especially to community colleges that we are going to see coming. And I think that is going to affect student housing in those markets and also who we cater to. So you talked about like trades and technical programs. That's always been a source that people look to in a down market to diversify your prospect pool. But really, it should be a predominant source in some of these markets as a feeder for student housing. Yeah. But I think that the the impacts are going to be different depending on the market and just depending on who the prospect base is, what the shadow market is there. So I, I truly don't think it's going to be a one size fits all. Feeding off of that a little bit, you know, some of the articles we're talking about the job market, eventually people will kind of hit that ceiling where the higher pay that they are receiving right now going directly into the job market will kind of stalemate. But even if those folks go back to school, they are not our target audience, right? They're not going to live in the traditional student housing that we all have. They're going to be on online courses, things of that nature. So I do think there is some level of permanency with the changes that we're seeing. Maybe not everything, because a lot of the stuff is cyclical. Population decline, for example, I think that's somewhat cyclical. If you look back to the last three or four decades, we've had some increases, some decreases, maybe not this extent, but some of the things that are, are not cyclical, maybe permanent, but are, are interesting from the information that you shared. I think I gave you guys kind of three ways I see us see higher education getting out of this. Closing and consolidation is going to be mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. and we've seen a lot of that this past year, or past two years, really. Huge increases in international students. And going into the pandemic, we were already seeing some of that pullback, especially with, with China because of you know, geopolitical issues. It's amazing. We've got uh, you know, there's a Canadian student housing conference that's happening at the end of the month. And I was interviewing a couple of guys in, in that market and uh, specifically in Vancouver. And what they're projecting from an international standpoint could likely surpass how many students we're currently getting in, in the United States from other countries. India is a huge one. And unlike China, a lot of students coming from India, they're not as fluent, not as don't have as much money. And when we start talking about housing affordability, that's going to be something that's going to be very real for them as well. And then, yeah, kind of the third thing is there's going to be this kind of radical shift in education. And is it some of these four-year universities starting to offer things in trades and things like mm-hmm. that? So I'll never forget the property in Laramie. Of course, they had Wyo Tech there. And I'll never forget when we took that over, there were literally kids that were taking engines apart on their table and the, you know, their dining room table and the table had to be replaced every single year. <laughs> and so I wonder if it's going to be something kind of like that. I think the one of the stats you shared was interesting. You know, 54% of college or potential college-age students don't perceive college as being necessary. That sounds to me like a really scary stat, but we work in the student industry and we know that mom and dad are the ones that typically make the decisions. At least that's what we're banking on. And we were talking about this at lunch, but I'm a parent of a young child with another one on the way. And if my kids come to me in 18 years, thank you, thank you. (laughs) I'm due during turn, so. Nice, well Well timed. Um, Waited 15 years for that. But um, if my kids come to me in 18 years and say, you know what, college isn't for me, well, we're going to have a tough decision because college is what pays the bills at home for us. So (laughs) 
that's, and not to say that obviously that's the path for everyone, but I think that stat sounds scarier than it maybe necessarily is right now. And I think just off of Jen's point, it's not a one size fits all. Yes, the tier one schools are, they're solid, they're doing great. And the tier threes and the tier fours, they're probably the ones that are going to be most impacted. But the tier two schools are still feeding into the tier one schools and the tier one schools are still accepting a lot of kids right now. So I do think some of these buzzwords are scarier than they actually are right now. Because you look at some of these tier two, tier three schools and their admission rate or acceptance rates is high because they have so many people that are, and they're taking everybody who's applying because they're, they're losing people to the tier one from before. But like Aaron was saying, I mean, I went through it personally with my son. I mean, he was at school and COVID hit and they kind of stopped and then he got a great job. And now, so he's making you know decent money. Now he's deciding, do I go back or not? And so that's a struggle. I think uh, you're going to see a lot of people have. I think I, I shared this with this group when we were prepping for this meeting, but I was at a conference two months ago and there was one advisor there and her company has uh, an agreement with about 140 schools that are very mm-hmm. likely to consolidate or close in the next five years. Mm-hmm. Obviously they're mostly tier three and tier four, but that was a, a statistic that stuck out with me, but not necessarily surprising with what we've seen yeah. in the last few years. And I think the tier two and three schools are gonna re- need to rely on that international base Correct. to kind of get back, like you were saying last, I mean, in order to kind of get back to the numbers that they, they've seen previously. So I saw at, uh, I guess it was Middle State, Tennessee, this past year, I think there were two or three conversions of student housing going too conventional. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think we're going to see a lot more of that? Oh, I think we're going I, to see that yeah. in a lot of places. And I think we're seeing it middle state, definitely what a tier three school probably. But we're seeing it a ton at like UTSA and San Antonio. We're seeing that all over the market that you're seeing cottage communities converting into your newest BTRs and different things like that. And they're taking beds off the student pipeline and turning conventional. I think we'll continue to see that. And from a lender yeah. standpoint, that was really part of the appeal of cottage mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Is yeah, and you're seeing markets like Tampa even. Yep. I mean, it's not just you know yep. some of the, the other markets, but some of the bigger markets are doing the same thing. They're buying yeah. and converting it to conventional. We did that. We bought a property. We ran it as student. And a year later, someone came, wanted to buy it, flipped the conventional. We sold it to them. So it's, it's happening. And that's not the only world that's thinking about that. The Mm -hmm. universities, I was at that same conference a a couple months ago with university presidents and and vice presidents, and they are asking developers to design new buildings on campus with the thought that they could flip it to Mm -hmm. a different purpose instead of student housing. Yeah. Because they they know that long-term enrollment can change. And so they want to be prepared where a big residence hall on campus doesn't have to stay a big residence hall on campus down the road. They want to be designing things with the thought in mind that if in 15 years they don't need that building to be student housing, they can flip it to be whatever else purposed on campus. Hey, before we get off our customers, I originally wasn't going to put this in because after our last preliminary call, I was like, man, I don't know if I really want to introduce politics into this whole discussion. But literally a week later, inside Higher Ed came out with uh, an article that was titled The Role of Politics and Where Students Want to Go to College. There was a lot of discussion in higher ed over the summer, you know, of course, with the reversal of Roe v. Wade of, okay, is this going to have an impact on where students end up going? And I don't think that's really played out yet because that that happened over the summer and I think everybody kind of made their commitments. And I really didn't know if that would 
you know, is it going to make some kind of impact? But when I came across this this article, it was actually in response to a recent study from the Art and Science Group. I don't know what that is, but that's what was referenced. Um, if that's a big publication, I, <laughs> it's the first I'm hearing of it. But Art and Science Group that found that nearly one in four high school seniors ruled out institutions solely due to the politics, policies, or legal situation in the state where the college was located. Now, forget why one in four are making that choice. Let's just assume for every student from a red state that wants to go to a blue state, there's a someone from a blue state wanting to go to a red state. So kind of you know, throw that out as to what states may end up having a higher population of college students. This means that five to 10 years from now, you're talking about 25% of the students that are living in off-campus communities decided to go to that market, to that school, because of the politics of that state. And um, we've witnessed educational migration due to things like affordability, nicer climates, strength of an athletic conference. I just want to know what kind of impact do you think, you know, an educational migration due to political preferences, how that may end up changing the way we operate off-campus communities, or does it? I think this is such an interesting question. I live in Florida. If you didn't hear, it's kind of a politically controversial thing. <laughs> um, and I have an almost 14-year-old. And so I'm not seeing this or hearing this like through my own personal network. So reading the statistics in Florida being cited as one of the states that liberals are ruling out, I find it interesting I personally think that affordability is always going to play a piece in college. And I think that mom and dad are very involved in that decision. Florida has bright futures, Florida prepaid. So I find it hard to believe that kids will not stay in state because of that affordability component. What I do think is that institutions have to have their own identity independent of the political preference of the state or the state government. So, you know, you see like University of Florida or Florida State, like they're forming their own identity. They're talking about inclusivity. They're talking about diversity and what it means to be a student at that school. I think that is going to become more important than it's ever been. And I I feel we're already seeing that as employers. Like we have individual identities as companies that appeal to our team members. And you know, at Cardinal, we put a huge focus on DE&I and that you can be your whole self at work. I think we are going to see that with institutions of like, can I show up and be who I am at school? And I think within the state, differentiating yourself from the other in-state schools is going to become more of a discussion point than it's ever been. I think it goes beyond just the political nature of the, the state too. Uh, one of the tertiary kind of impacts here or Florida, no offense, is that the governor is putting pressure on the flagships to get rid of their DE&I efforts. And that's so counter to, I think, what most of us are doing with our own companies, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And even at those institutions, they are, like you were saying, heavily pushing uh, those DE&I efforts. But with the pressure from politics, how does that impact each of the flagship institutions if the governor is saying, you got to do it, or your funding is gone, then inevitably they're going to have to make some sort of shifts, right? And how does that impact the student decision-making process? It's going to be very interesting. I agree with you that especially because of people living in Florida, they have some choices that are probably a little easier than out-of-state folks, but it'll be interesting to see how the politics indirectly impact the student decisions and ultimately the enrollment. Yeah, I think it will 
be interesting as well, but I don't necessarily think that it will have a positive or negative impact on off-campus housing specifically, but it will definitely be interesting to see the direction that it goes. I think for every one person from Texas that doesn't want to go to California, there's one person from California yeah. that's exactly. not going to want to go to Texas. Yep. And so interesting for sure. I am from Florida. I am a graduate of Florida State and went to Florida State because of Bright Futures. And it would take a lot in the state for me to not have taken that path. So let me, let me ask this, you know, for years it was a joke of, hey, if you're going to build in Colorado, you got to, you know, make sure that you have a recycling plan and all that kind of stuff, especially if it was in Boulder. And when you're talking about building something in the in the southeast, it was their biggest concern was how green was the football field on mm-hmm. Saturday. So thinking about how you may end up programming and designing student housing with this type of political climate ahead of us, are you guys thinking about that at all? Is there anything that you guys are... We're, we haven't done our own development. I, I know Ben's in the room from core, so I'm going <laughs> to shout them out because I think that's already happening. Like, it's amazing to see the thought process that's going into how these communities are programmed. Everything from solar access to podcasting studios and art rooms. And I think the development groups have done a great job Mm -hmm. of programming communities to meet the needs of today's students. And it's been really exciting to see that focus because we all, what we do has the ability to impact somebody's journey far beyond college. And I think that's already happening. And I think it'll just keep evolving when you just think about the cycle of like, it was Mm -hmm. pools and then it was fitness centers and then it was study. And now it's all of these other amenities. I think that's been consistently changing. I want to move forward to technology because I don't think we can talk about the future without talking about technology. And I think the biggest thing on everybody's radar right now is AI. And I certainly think that it's going to create for the property management industry, it's going to create a lot of efficiencies. Jen, I know you guys are deploying a lot right now with that. I do think it's going to end up eliminating some positions. I would say it's probably going to be more on the regional manager or asset manager level because I think that's where I could see AI being the strongest, the earliest. But you guys are seeing in the news, you guys are talking about it. What does the future look like with that? What, what are your thoughts? I think it depends on the company that you're at and how big is the company and what you're leaning towards. I mean, yes, Cardinal is doing stuff. Uh, they're a bigger company. And you have some smaller companies who they may not be able to afford to go down that road yet with the AI technology. We're looking at it immensely in a lot of ways, but to me, it still goes back to coverage in the office. You still have to have people in the office. At times, you still have a a resident base of five to 600 people that yes, you can consolidate leasing, you can do that way. Maybe you consolidate your accounts manager's positions or your collections efforts, but you still have 600 residents that have needs and they still wanna come into the office. So it's still a struggle of figuring out how you have to staff that moving forward. Yeah, I agree. And I think that ultimately what AI is going to do is it's going to complement our existing efficiencies, but I don't necessarily see it eliminating. Think of it more as a compliment, but I am curious what your vision was with the regional manager. I kind of envisioned, you know, in an AI future that the task lists and everything else that a regional manager is typically the one that's you know, making sure that the site level is checking the boxes. Yeah, when, when you it's first said that, I mean, I know I did. I was just like, no way. Like, there, there's no way. I mean, at least for our company, 
I mean, you may be right. I mean, I'm just trying to think about, you know, how it's going to be in the future with the technology. But to me, the regionals are the lifeblood of holding a lot of stuff together at the properties from an operation standpoint. (laughs) So, uh, you know, eliminating them, it could be a challenge. It could be interesting, you know. And and I say that because as a regional manager, when I was a regional manager and when I had regional managers reporting to me, Mm -hmm. it was all about making that position as efficient as it possibly could because those people – the most important thing they were doing was traveling to the sites and checking mm-hmm. on everybody. And so if we're able to take off all the other analytical stuff that they're doing, they can get to more properties. It goes back to what you have them focused on currently, right? right. And, you know, and if you're going to consolidate positions with AI, yeah, everyone wants to save on expenses wherever you can and make it more efficient because I think we all sit up here as operators and try to find ways to how to make it easier for the site level folks because they're the ones every time you roll out a new initiative as a company it all flows down to the site level and so we got to figure out like how to make it a little bit better for them to operate. And the other reason I I say that is I mean look the margins for a property management company are pretty slim and if there's one thing that we're going to be able to cut back on is payroll and we're going to be able to replace that with technology i see that where yeah i see that i, being I, I think it's happening wes i really do and i think it's going to continue to happen we're looking at at all things not just on the office side but we're even looking on the maintenance side you know bringing in ai uh, how does it make it more efficient for your techs to to diagnose a problem sooner right yeah. and to be able to go in there and to, to work on a work order instead of having to go figure out what the issue is first, then come back and then come back to the unit. You know, it's, it saves you money, obviously. Yeah. So there's lots of different things out there with AI that, yeah, you can definitely save money. And, and I think we're all exploring that as organizations. Yeah. I think also, though, similar to our last conversation, it's not a one-size-fits-all model. All of us here, I mean, we all have completely different portfolios. I probably operate the smallest portfolio of the group, but I also work for a developer. And so our goal is not necessarily to ever be the largest. We'll we'll never be the largest. We'll never compete, nor would we want to, because our goal is to develop properties, sell them, and continue to develop properties. And so for us, some of the AI that y'all are doing, it's great. We love it. And I completely support it. But for us, it doesn't necessarily make as much sense. To your point, we're probably not needing to put those dollars into those areas because our goal is ultimately just to build a property, sell it, and then redevelop. It'll eventually get to a price point where it's going to make sense. But what's going to be really interesting is transferable skills, right? So if more groups are adopting AI, then is it harder for somebody that comes from one company to go to another? And I mean, I'm probably the dissenting opinion here, but I think AI is the future of the operating model. I don't think two years from now, any of us will be sitting here without having incorporated some form of AI. And I think the number one thing it does is improve the quality of the experience. And I agree Mm -hmm. with you. We all have residents we have to service, but where I don't agree is they don't want to come in the office anymore. They want to communicate with us in all the ways that they communicate with Amazon Mm -hmm. and do online shopping and everything is online. And so how do you adopt technology that improves that experience and meets them where they're at? So where we've rolled out AI, over 30% of our interactions are when the office is closed, either for a holiday or after hours. And we can't quantify how many of those leads would have just gone elsewhere. They would have discovered another community and maybe applied, but they didn't because the lead was nurtured at a timeframe where it wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So I think 
the number one thing in thinking about technology is how do we improve the experience for our team and our residents? It will inadvertently impact the way we staff our properties. But in reality, last year, what we were talking about is how do we combat rising personnel costs? I truly believe when the markets open back up and we're all running after deals again, we will have to be doing things like this to combat rising personnel costs yeah. to be competitive for acquisition. So I think it's a twofold thing, but our approach is really thinking about how do we take those tasks from our onsite teams that are manually cumbersome mm -hmm. and make them automated and consistent. Yeah. And with consistency is better performance. And then the onsite teams can focus on how do you make the experience of living at this community better? How do you improve the mental health of your residents? How do you create that concierge type experience because you're no longer in a back room posting rent? Yeah. Yeah. Because if you have people like that's exactly what we're looking at, too, when we're looking at, you know, bringing in technology, because if you have residents that are focused on packages or whatever it is, that's a lot of time that they're focused on that. That when they could be dealing with some some other situations that come up uh, on the property on a daily basis, mental health is it's a huge thing now that we're seeing and our residents are are going through a lot of stuff and our staff is, is having to deal with that. So like Jen's saying, if you can take that time away from them to focus on stuff like that more, it's going to help everybody. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about, I think it's probably what I'm most excited to talk about, and that's leadership. And I opened this up talking about you guys. Some of you are in the C-suite. Some of you are certainly close to it. I definitely think out of the five of you, someone's going to end up owning their own company, servicing this industry, be it on the property management side or, or something else. And what I'm thinking, what I want to ask you is when you're thinking about what that looks like in the future. What does the leadership of that core team that you want to build around you, what does it look like? For me, the top two skills would be resiliency and the ability to adapt. I think like most up here and out in the crowd, we go through a lot of change. It seems like we get our feet underneath us and then mm -hmm. Grace Jar says, we're, we're going to change this up again, whether that's looking for efficiencies or whatever. And the leaders that kind of float to the top seem to be very good at being resilient through that change. And it's not necessarily just change that is internal to Graystar or even to the industry. It's it's the political change, it's the COVID, it's the whatever else that they have to deal with. So resiliency and the, the ability to adapt and pivot, I think are going to be vital characteristics to, to the next next set of leaders. I think to add to that, empathy is the big one. I love what you said, but I also think that it's more and more important nowadays to be empathetic with your resident and your potential next person who's coming into your role. We're seeing just across the board how important it is to be inclusive and to you know really respect people's feelings and opinions, whether it's publicly or on social media, whatever it is. And I just think having that next generation of leader, that's that's going to be just so important. It's not just about the bottom line. It's not just about how much money can your company make. It's what is your company doing? What's the impact that they're making? And that to me only happens when you have a leader who can actually show that empathy to the resident or the parent or, you know, whoever it is. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. Definitely adaptability. What I will say is I think the upcoming generation gets a bad rap, but they're actually so smart, like smarter than we were mm -hmm. when we were coming up. So I think what is lacking right now, and I'm seeing it in my 13-year-old son, is they are so ingrained in technology that they don't have the basic communication skills. So mm -hmm. I think it's incumbent upon us as we start with CIs, like really teaching them like, 
how to have conversations, how to make eye contact, how to be confident and courageous with your ideas. Like that's how you're going to come up as a leader where it's sometimes hard for them to even stand up and greet a prospect because they are so used to communicating by digital means. So I think courage and confidence is going to be a big thing. And then also innovation. Along with adaptability comes like, how do we look forward? How do we see what we need before we need it? And I think technology and data have come so far that we're getting better predictive analytics, but being innovative is really how you continue to drive a business forward. I mean, I think they hit all the the highlighted ones for sure that we look at. But for me, I I did have the ability when we started this company to kind of go out there and try to find some folks not too long ago. And we were looking for change agents. I mean, you have people, you go to a property who can, if you're going to get a new deal, sometimes you're needing to change that property, right? Because you, yeah. you either you bought that deal for the value or that to, to make the change, or you're taking over from a third party side because the property was in distress. So we look for those folks that can come in and actually just be that immediate change agent on the property. And it doesn't mean you, you have a college degree and you know you went in school for management or anything like that. Experience is huge in this, but sometimes you just, you know, when you see that right person, like they can go and they make that immediate impact on the property. What those qualities are, are everything that they all mentioned. And so for us, you know, attitude obviously is, is a big thing, but if you can't be adaptable and you can't go in there and sometimes make the tough decisions as that change agent, but those are the people that we're looking for. Yeah, I agree with everything. The only other items that I would add are probably grit and tenacity. I think as this generation comes up, there is there's a shift for sure. We have talked about we have to be the leaders that we didn't necessarily have. So I think looking for that tenacity and grit in those future leaders is really important because we all know that student housing is not easy. So it takes a lot. And going back to resilience and all of the other items that you guys mentioned, that's... And the only thing I would say is patience with the new group coming in because when we were all in the business, you know, starting out, it's a different environment completely. I mean, we were on site for a long time and you had to, you know, pay your dues in order to kind of get promoted. But now, you know, we're all seeing it. You're in the business and they think they're ready to be the next VP of the company, you know, and having to explain to them like that's hopefully, you know, hopefully someday, but that's not necessarily how it always works. But if they have that patience and once you groom them and you find that talent and you can talk with them, this is where we see you. This is exactly the path that we see you on right now as of today that will change throughout the year. But you have to be open with your team and they have to know where they stand in order to kind of be prepared for that next level. So last thing I want to ask you guys about, if you have some time, we'll we'll go to the audience as well. But I want to talk about consolidation. And I've got some stats here. I I sent you guys something that in advance, uh, I hope you got a kick out of looking at. But I sent you guys the top 25 student housing managers list from this past year, from the end of 22, as well as the list from 2010 when student housing business first published that list. Here's some kind of key things to note from that. From the top 25 in 2010, there are only seven that remain there today. Eight, if you include Pete, you know, used to be place properties. ACC was at the top of that list in 2010 with 89,635 beds. ACC still at the top of that list with 143,049 beds. At number 25 this year was Pierce at just under 10,000, 9,684. Number 25 in 2010 was, a, and this took me, this was a trip down memory lane, was uh, Educational Housing Services at 4,000 beds. For those that don't know those guys, it's a nonprofit in New York that operates in the city. But anyway, 
In 2010, there were 10 companies that had less than 8,000 beds. This year, there are only seven companies with less than 20,000 beds. So obviously, there's been a ton of development since 2010. We all know that. But when you look at the acquisitions that have happened since 2010, of course, you got Campus Crest going to Harrison Street, Graystar taking EDR private. And there's a lot of developers that I think we can all kind of immediately think of that, you know, have entered the space in the past five years and just said, we're not going to try to manage this ourselves. Sometimes the lenders make them do that. But I've heard a lot over the past 18 to 24 months about continuing consolidation and what that's going to look like. Are we even going to have a top 25? In a lot of ways, I kind of see it being like a, a top five, top eight, and then the folks that make up the, the rest of the top 25 are probably regional mom and pop players, you know, with scattered sites. So anyway, I wanted to ask that question. You guys believe we will continue to see consolidation? And if so, how does that change how we operate these student housing properties? There's no denying that it's going to continue to occur. I mean, you shared stats. If you just look around the table, mm-hmm. you know, Vesper used to third-party manage, mm-hmm. and now there's CLS. You go has bought a ton of product that was third-party managed just in the last 12 to 18 months. So it's happening in larger transactions and it's happening in smaller ones too. We see, you know, groups that are working with two or three operators consolidating to one. So it's definitely occurring in terms of how it changes how we operate from the perspective of somebody that operates a diverse portfolio with a lot of third party. I think you just look through the lens of always being the best operator you can be. We have the advantage of owning communities and then third party managing Mm -hmm. a lot. And so that helps us on the operation side, think like an owner. And I think you have to do that. We pride ourselves in managing third party communities the same way we manage our owned assets, but we get those best practices by working closely with our investments team. So I think you just need to focus on doing the best job you can do. There's not a lot we can do to control things that are transacting. We have a a portfolio selling out of our uh, management side that is going to all either vertically integrated groups or conventional groups. So you can't deny that the pool of what's available from a shared third-party perspective is shrinking. There are just a lot more vertically integrated groups than there used to be. And, and there's so much institutional capital in the space than ever before. And you're seeing those companies, you know, use that and they're going to gobble up some stuff. And then, yeah, they are going to do what Jen was saying and, and you know, start consolidating their portfolio. We talked to owners on the third-party side as well, and they may be using two and three people, but I think ultimately their goal is to consolidate at some point into one platform. It makes it easier for them instead of having three or four different types of reports that they're getting and just everything yeah. that they're going to need as a company, especially when you have these big public companies that are REITs, yeah. you know, and they're, they have specific reporting requirements. And so that's, to, to me, we're seeing that a lot of on, on the third party side, you know, they, the easier it is for them to consolidate stuff it's for reporting, it's going to be. I agree with with both Jen and Dan. I think what it does long-term for us as operators doesn't necessarily change our philosophy with how we operate, but it could very well change and further support what we talked about earlier in terms of technology and AI, right? Going from the smaller companies to the larger companies, maybe it further supports justification for doing some more consolidation and some more centralized leasing and things of that nature when you have that scale, because it makes more sense. Mm -hmm. You can create more efficiencies doing that. I don't think it changes... What we do, we still operate. We still have the same philosophy, probably, but we we probably have to make some changes to create some more efficiencies. 
I really also, again, will say, I think there's room for everybody at the table on this one. You know, I looked at your stats last night and dinner scene in 2010 was number nine and dinner scene in 2022 was number 22. Arguably to me and to within our company and our organization, we're more successful now than we were in 2010, but we have less beds. So it's not necessarily about the bed count. It's about the strategy of your company, obviously. And I come from, I worked for 10 years at Asset Living, which is I think number two on your list. So I see it from both sides. Um, But I do think that there's space for everyone here. I, of course, agree consolidation at the top is going to continue to happen. But again, that's not everyone's strategy here. It's not just about how many beds you manage. That doesn't define how successful your company is. And I, I, maybe I selfishly say this as I work for a developer, but we we don't manage or we don't look at our success rate at our bed count. So I'm going to ask this question to you. If, If a developer is listening to this right now, and it's not the developer I work for. And, and, and they're thinking about, you know, don't want to manage or not. Because I think most it's a hard decision. I think most developers mm-hmm. will agree no one's going to manage it like yourself. Yep. Especially when you're a merchant developer. Yep. What would your suggestion be to them? Um, I think it's a really good question. Obviously, at you know dinner scene, we because I know what these guys are going to say. They're going to say sure. their company is the one that they need. So For absolutely, sure. <laughs> I will say. I mean, you said it. No company is going to manage your property as if it was your own. And I personally am invested in our properties because we personally own them, and it's hard to get that elsewhere. And I say that again, I worked for 10 years at a third party manager. I totally get it. I understand the business plan, but it's also one of those things. It's easier said than done. We have an established management team. It's not easy to create that. And it's not easy to get that, to build that team and to get there. So for new developers coming on the market, it doesn't probably make sense for you to do that. I think our organization is fairly unique. We've been around. We're one of the oldest developers and operators in the space. So we can look at things a little bit differently, but I don't think that that works for everyone. Yeah, I think that brings up just an interesting point. It's deciding who you want to be, right? Some developers want to focus on development and they don't want Mm -hmm. the headache of management. But the flip side and what we really haven't talked about in this question is how does it affect the talent pool? How does it affect what Mm -hmm. we need to offer our team members? And having worked at a smaller company and now a larger company, when you do have scale, you are able to do centralization. You are able to offer benefits packages that are really responding to what people are wanting. So I do think that's going to be a factor in this that we can't underappreciate is, you know, we're already seeing what our team members want and need to feel like they're getting compensation yeah. and like mm-hmm. full benefits. And that's harder to do at a smaller size. And so for dinner scene, for sure, they're established and they have a team and they have a platform. But if you're a developer starting out and you don't, that can be a very big distraction from doing the core job of development. Yeah. I mean, I would almost advise, you know, a developer that wants to do that, not even to try to pick from the, as far as folks that they would try to pull away from other established student housing companies because I've had several development clients that they're mutual clients. I tell them to go to Cardinal or to wherever because they're not going to, they're doing one or two projects a year. They're not going to be able to recruit, you know, anybody that's coming out of school or, you know, has been at a property for three to five years is looking to make that next step into a GM position or whatever. 
They want to go where they can grow. Right. Obviously, you guys are kind of in that sweet spot at Dinnerstein where you can kind of balance that. But a new developer starting out. Just to piggyback off Jen, that was really going to be my point is that, and again, I say this coming from, you know, asset living versus I've worked at Dinnerstein now for five years, but it's much easier to show growth path at Cardinal and at Asset and yeah. ACC and, mm-hmm. you know, different things like that. And that is, we're already talking about it. Everyone wants mm-hmm. to know what's my next move, what's my next move. It becomes that much more challenging the smaller the company is. Um, and it's something that we're working But you're not deploying AI out. yet, so you've got to have more people. And we did that, I mean, at CLS. I mean, we we started out just being an owner operator. That was what yeah. we started out to do. And kind of like what Jen was saying, I mean, you have this talent pool. What do you do with, you know, if you're not growing? I mean, you know, you kind of hit that. We made that decision to, yeah. okay, let's start third party. And it, it helped us because we had that talent pool ready to go to be able to, to handle it. Yeah. Guys, I appreciate it so much. We've got about five minutes before we need to, uh, for some other folks that have got to be at another uh, session that's about to start. So thanks so much, audience. If you would, please give them a round of applause. Well, again, big thanks to, to everybody who helped out with that. also want to call out, and you didn't hear him on there, but Adam Yarber, he kind of played producer during all of that. Of course, Adam's one of our co-hosts as well, and actually just started a new position with University Partners. So Adam, congrats to you, and thanks so much for helping out with that. So Mary, after hearing that again, any other takeaways? You know, I think they really hit it on the nail. I feel like when you're building your team in the property management world, especially in student housing, you are looking for someone who is resilient and adaptable. And I just loved hearing that because I thought it was so real and really applied to the site level. I couldn't stop thinking about how impactful that was on the site level. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of of being resilient and adaptable and (laughs) and all that, thanks so much for taking your, I know it's been a crazy couple of weeks for you and you've got those 3,600 beds that you've got to get back to. And we're also recording this kind of mid-morning, which means it's early morning for you. So (laughs) Um, thanks so much for that. And for anybody else that wants to possibly reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Email or LinkedIn. And my email address is maryallen08 at gmail.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn with LinkedIn slash maryallen08. Perfect. And we've also got a couple of webinars coming up that we need to talk about. Of course, Shop Talk. I'm not exactly sure that this will come out before April Shop Talk. That is April 18th. If you want more information on Shop Talk, and that's the monthly webinar for owners, operators, and developers in the space, you can find out more information at shoptalk.info. Well, Mary, thanks so much. Congratulations with everything that's going on and we'll talk to you soon. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me today, Wes. 